morning. We need Jesus so much, don't we? Every moment of every day. Today we're, we're going to read some words of Jesus. If your Bible has red letters, they'll be red. They're black in mine. But they're the words of Jesus to people who close doors to others. Any kind of door slamming is a bit of a jolt. You might have had some slamming doors at your house this past week. Maybe it was your car door. Could have been the, car, the door to your room or the front door or the back door. But when doors slam, you can get injured. I remember when I was a kid, I got my fingers uh, slammed in the car door. I remember um, our son Michael getting uh, stuck in an elevator once when the doors closed and the thing got stuck. We spent 45 wonderful minutes wondering if we would ever see him again. A closed door tells you that you are not welcome. Like closed door meetings, not open to the public, things like that. The Pharisees were experts at closing doors. They closed doors to the kingdom. They kept people away from acknowledging Christ's lordship. And they were experts at that. They were really good at it. God doesn't want us to close doors uh, for the gospel. He doesn't want us to be uh, hypocritical door closers. He wants us to, to open doors. He wants us to, to um, freely give the gospel. He wants us by our life and by our leadership to show others the way to Christ. That's what he wants. Now, we're going to read Matthew 23. I want you to open your Bibles to that. And I want you to stand with me to read God's Word. But I want you to, um, to notice the context. Uh, last week, we began a, a new chapter in Matthew, Matthew chapter 23. A new series within a larger series, uh, exposition of Matthew's Gospel. And we are on this journey now through Matthew chapter 23 that I am calling Seven Words, Seven Woes. Not seven literal words, but seven statements, seven messages, seven things that Jesus says about the scribes and Pharisees, about their lives, about their leadership, the character traits that led to uh, lives that didn't please God and ministry that didn't please God. Jesus had given them a failing grade. They hadn't done their job. They didn't lead the nation to repentance. And so he is giving these woes. Today we're going to see the first woe. All right. We're going to read Matthew 23, verses 1 through 13. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts, and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbis, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ." The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, 
scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. This is God's word, and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for your presence. Lord, we praise you and we acknowledge your goodness and your glory and your, your holiness and your love. And Lord, we, we even thank you for this strong word, this startling word, this, this word to door closers, telling them that you're going to close the door on them because of their actions and because of their heart and because they were leading people astray. Lord, keep us from all the sins of the scribes and the Pharisees, Lord. Keep us humble in your sight, Lord. Teach us today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to look at just one verse today, primarily. Verse 13. Verses 1 through 12, Jesus had given a warning to his disciples and to the people, the crowds that had gathered in earshot of the scribes and the Pharisees, but before he launches out on them, he gives a warning. And we saw that last week, we, uh, part one of Seven Words, Seven Woes, how not to be a hypocrite. But today we're going to look at part two, the first woe on the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus' word to door closers, and we're going to see what they did wrong what we sometimes do wrong and what we can do differently. That's where we're going today with that. Matthew chapter 23 contains Jesus' last public sermon. And it's not one on discipleship or on salvation, but it's a sober reminder that people's souls were at stake. This was a few days before the cross. This was a serious word of warning on those that were leading others astray, that were keeping others from Him. Now maybe a year earlier, Jesus had begun to denounce the Pharisees. In chapter 15, we we saw that. And He had warned His disciples already of the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. He said, beware of their teaching. Now He pronounces a woe on them. Verse 13 But woe to you. Woe to you. Now, what is that word woe? It's different than how we would use it sometimes. I mean, do you remember the Fonz? He used to say, whoa. You know, like, wow, this is amazing, or this is kind of crazy, or whatever. It's not like that. It's it's an expression of grief. It's it's really more, it's not so much a word as just a a sound. (laughs) It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a guttural cry of anguish, really. It can contain anger. It can contain pain. It's not like us stopping a horse and saying, Whoa! It's this, it's this deep exclamation. That's what it is. An exclamation. Whoa! And, and it... And it has within it anger and anguish and pain. In the Hebrew, it's that word oi that Jewish people sometimes, oi. Um, it, it's an expression of pain and sorrow or grief or disappointment. Most people, if they use it now, that's, they're disappointed in something. 
But in the Hebrew sense, it, was, it could even mean the fear of death. In the New Testament usage, it, it, it has this idea of sorrow, but it also has, and this is what it's about in here in chapter 23, the idea of judgment. That's the overriding focus of Jesus using this word. And he uses this word seven times in this chapter. It is repeated, and it is strong, and it is pointed at judgment on the scribes and the Pharisees. It's, and it's kind of like, it's more like an impending disaster that's going to happen rather than someone being in present anguish at that time. Something is going to happen to them. It's, it's more like a prediction of a coming hurricane than maybe the startling jolt of an earthquake that you just feel right without any warning. It's what it is, if you think about it, the, the idea of woe, Jesus is saying, this is the sound you're going to make when the judgment comes upon you. It's like saying, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes when this happens. God is going to put some hurt on them. If there is a statement of condemnation, this is, there's, this, is, this is a statement of condemnation. We don't like to deal with that, do we? We, we want to deal in comfort. We want to deal in happiness. We want to deal in lightness and joy. And this is too heavy for most of us. This is a statement of condemnation. It's actually the exact opposite of a blessing. This is a curse on them. It expresses the judgment of God. It is intense. And there's this intensity of emotion. There's this strict condemnation. It's like Jude 11. Jude 11 says, Woe to them! They walked in the way of Cain. No one wants to do that. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. They perished in Korah's rebellion. This is the type of Im- uh, in, in, immense intensity of emotion that is going on. It's, it's an intense personal sorrow and anguish that's going to come upon them. It's like Paul when he said in Romans 9, God knows that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. That's what he says in Romans 9.2. And the reason why, he said, I wish that I myself would be accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He wanted his brothers to come to know Christ so much that he was willing to give up what he had, if he could. Now, a woe can be very compassionate, but it's a strong condemnation. It can be a combination of the two. And you know with Jesus it is. But it's not a vindictive thing. It's not spiteful. It's not that Jesus was so personally um, angry at them. This was Jesus, the God of the universe, Jesus, the righteous judge, pronouncing really judicial judgment. Woe to you, Something big is going to happen to you. I wouldn't want to be in your shoes, scribe, scribes, uh, excuse me, um, scribes and Pharisees. And then he says, hypocrites. Now he calls them hypocrites almost every time he gives a woe, except one time. We'll see that in a few weeks. But he calls them hypocrites. It's a strong word. He's calling them actors. He's calling them max, masked men who are full of guile and trickery and deceit. They have pretense hanging all over them. They have this pretend righteousness going on. 
See, Jesus reserved his strongest words for the Pharisees. Interesting, but in terms of position, in terms of even um, the role that Jesus played during his ministry on earth, there was probably no one he had more in common with from an outward perspective than the Pharisees. There was also no one he had uh, was completely and diametrically opposed to than the Pharisees. They were his worst enemies. On the outside, they looked like they should have aligned with him, but they were completely against him. So he reserves these strong words for the, for, the, for the scribes and the Pharisees because they said one thing and did another. They didn't practice what they preached. They claimed to be God's representatives and they led people away from God. And we saw this last week in what, what, what he was saying in verses 1 through 12. They created burdens. They wouldn't help anybody. They didn't care to help anyone that was, that was uh, crushed under those burdens that they created. They were egotistical. They were all appearance-oriented. It was all about how they would be treated because of what they did. So they were competing for recognition and special treatment all the time with one another. And Jesus said that they were, they were coveting the special position and the prominent self-glory and they felt like they were the ultimate authorities in people's lives. They were playing God in people's lives. And they want to be recognized as the most significant people to others. So Jesus says, don't be like them. Don't do it. What we saw was that to, to not be like them, we've got to stay humble. We've got to let God keep basically crushing our heart due to how we are exposed to ourselves and our true condition. Let's just say that this week in your life was a week that God was exposing some things about your heart. And they weren't pretty. They weren't presentable. And they weren't particularly um, godly. They were things about yourself that you, that you realized and, and you didn't know what to do with it. When that happens, Jesus wants us to throw ourselves on his mercy once again. When, we're rev- when a fresh look of our, at ourselves is revealed to us, and I think that happens often in the lives of true believers, we've got to run to Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees, though, ran towards him bold-faced. They, they stood up to Jesus proud and arrogant and didn't care what he thought. They were blind. What we see in this passage is that God does not condone hypocrisy. He, he reveals it. He exposes it. And when we find ourselves stuck in the, in the falsehood of hypocrisy, the alarm really should go off in our heads and say something's wrong, this isn't right. And we should run back to the cross and run back to Jesus. That's repentance. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Thomas Brooks, who lived in the 1600s, said this, Hypocrites trade not with God upon the credit of Christ's love, blood, righteousness, and intercession. By the way, that's what we need to cling to. Christ's love, blood, righteousness, and intercession. He says, Hypocrites trade not with God on that, but upon the credit of their own prayers, tears, desires, and endeavors. It's all about them. They're the center of their own universe. 
But what we, like we saw last week, we don't have a mask we wear in Christ. Christ doesn't say, uh, I welcome you, my child, put on this fake mask. And when you're happy, put on the sad face. And when you're sad, put on the happy face. God doesn't do that. We have new garments in Christ. It's Christ's righteousness. And it's only by the righteousness of Christ that we can stand before a holy God. But what did the Pharisees do to deserve the title? Hypocrites. What did they do to, to deserve this denunciation? Woe to you. I wouldn't want to be in your shoes. You're a bunch of hypocrites. Why? Here's what Jesus said. Because you shut off the kingdom from men. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. It's like slamming a door in someone's face. You ever had that happen to you? It doesn't feel good, does it? It's humiliating. It's angering. You shut off the kingdom from men for you don't enter yourselves and you don't allow those who, are, who want to go in to go in. How'd they do that? Well, they were, they were shutting off the kingdom by their extremely self-righteous set of rules and regulations that they pressed upon everyone else and they taught to everyone else and then the example that didn't follow it. So they were being door shutters. Jesus says, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. They were door slammers. They were boxing people out of the kingdom of God. Literally, they were locking people out. They were excluding people another way to put it they were excluding we all know what it's like to be excluded and that doesn't feel very good and so jesus was charging them with a crime and he was charging them with the crime of shutting off heaven from men now in luke chapter 11 verse 52 they were charged with the even worse crime taking away the key not just shutting off heaven, but taking away the key. Called the key of knowledge. Not the key to open up knowledge in general, but the true knowledge of God as the only key to open heaven. What did Jesus say? This is eternal life, John 17, 3. That they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. A true knowledge of God is the only key to open heaven. They had taken that away. They wouldn't let people listen to what Jesus was saying. They wanted them to listen to them. It was like if they were screaming over Jesus, loud as they could. They pretended to know God, they didn't. They pretended to be his authoritative representatives, but they weren't. So the picture is this, of them standing outside of the kingdom, almost like outside of heaven's gates, and slamming them in people's faces as they're trying to enter in. Here they are. They're not in charge of the door, but they're making themselves God's bouncers, God's door doormen, gatekeepers. They're putting up barriers, roadblocks, barricades, hindrances, blocking the way people to, to listen to Christ. It was really interesting. The scribes and the Pharisees were all about what they did, right? Jesus isn't saying really anything about um, their, their exact conduct, but about entrance into the kingdom. It's an interesting thing that prop, God wants us to you know, act appropriately and act um, properly, 
but it gets no one into the kingdom. They just were blocking the door. Shutting off the kingdom. What's the kingdom? Uh, The kingdom comes up over and over and over again in Matthew. The kingdom equals God's reign, God's rule, God's saving sovereignty. The kingdom came with Jesus and his preaching and his miracles. The kingdom came with his death and resurrection. The kingdom will come at the end of the age. There's this already and not yet ideas of the kingdom. All those who who come to faith in Christ are under his rule. One day the whole entire universe will acknowledge his rule. That's what they did. They took away the kingdom from people. Now, how did they shut the door? What was their strategy of door shutting? Uh, they were slamming the door, but what were the things they were doing that kind of, that Jesus is really pointing to? Well, there's many. First of all, they twisted the word of God. They took God's word and they made it something it wasn't. And they made up this whole elaborate system of works righteousness. And they rejected Jesus the Messiah. And they refused to repent. And they lived by law rather than grace. And what they ended up doing is clouding the gospel of grace. They, they, they end up clouding the pathway of justification by faith. So they claim to teach God's way. They boast about teaching God's way, but they refuse to yield or surrender to Christ's lordship. They wanted to keep control. That was their way of, of slamming the door. So how do, we slam, how do we shut the door? How do we do that sometimes? Well, we close doors to the gospel when we don't repent, when we don't forgive, when we profile people, when we prejudge them, when we pretend to be one thing but we're not, when we prefer people one over another, when we confuse the truth with lies. We shut the door when we command obedience to non-essential things as part of coming to faith in Christ. When we demand justice and withhold mercy. When we condemn the sinner and the sin. Every one of us in our better moments would say, my only hope is Christ. All I have is Christ. But then we get into these sinful moments uh, where we don't walk by the Spirit. We, we uh, choose to walk in the flesh and then we experience the consequences of that. Let's get a little more personal. What if when we exclude people arbitrarily, either from, either from fellowship or from even hearing the gospel, when we show partiality, when we display uncontrolled anger, when we nurture ongoing hatred of others, whether it be people groups or individuals, when we're inhospitable, even that can close the door for the gospel. When we're unkind, when we're rude, when we see people as an inconvenience, when we're impatient with slow growers, or those one-step-forward, two-step-back folks. 
close the door to the gospel when we're too free with our opinions. You never know. You know, how, you know when you say something and you just go, I can't believe I just said that in front of that person. Let's get my foot out of my mouth as quick as I can. Oh, they're both in there. We close the door to the gospel when we see others' faults and not our own. When we're pharisaical and we go, oh, everyone else is wrong but me. Peter learned his lesson. Go with me to Acts chapter 10. Peter learned a good lesson. A really good one. Acts chapter 10 verse 9. Peter, one of the reasons I love this story is because it's about an Italian. The next day they were on their journey, they were approaching the city, and Peter went on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry. He wanted something to eat. And while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. He could have just eaten those. <laughs> And, and, and there, but no, he wouldn't because there came a voice to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. God wanted him to go hunting. But here's his answer. By no means, Lord. That's what you don't want to say to Jesus. By no means, Lord. That's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? No, Lord. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. I'm a holy Joe. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Now it happens three times. So if he didn't get the point the first time, and then it was taken up into heaven. So he's trying to figure out what is going on and these men were sent by Cornelius. They'd already been sent before he got this vision. And and God says to him, three men are looking for you. Go with them. Don't worry about it. Go with them. I'll tell you what to say. Now he would never have done this. He would never go to Gentiles. He would never hang out with those people. But here's the lesson he learned, verse 34. By the way, this whole, this whole group gathers at this house. They're like, we're here to hear a message from you. How'd you like that? How'd you like that kind of alley-oop for preaching the gospel? Hey, we're all here, and we don't know what you're going to say, but we want to hear it. And we're going to listen to you. So here's what Peter said. Truly. I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. And then He preaches Jesus to them. He says in verse 43, To Him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Him, that's Jesus, receives forgiveness of sins through His name. That's what He told them. Peter learned his lesson. He kind of had to learn it the hard way. Here's Jesus' words to door closers. Here's what he says. In essence, don't close people off from the gospel. Show others the way to Christ. Don't, don't, Don't close people off from the gospel. Show the way to Christ. Don't lock the door. Open the door. 
He's telling them, quit shutting people out arbitrarily. Don't close the door on the kingdom. Don't box other people out. I know people who never lock their front door. Their, their house is always open. And I remember uh, my wife told me a time when they were uh, kids and they, they uh, accidentally got locked out of her friend's house that they were spending the night at. And so they ran over to her uncle's house, who they knew always left the door open, and just walked in. Everyone's asleep. They just walked in, went to sleep, and woke up in the morning and said hi. Some people never lock their doors. Always open, like Denny's. How can we be like that with the gospel? How, how can we be gospel door openers instead of these wretched door closers that Jesus is pronouncing a woe upon? How can we be like that? Let me give you three short exhortations. Okay, what can we do? What can we do about it? You want to know, right? I do. Number one, you've got to declare your ongoing need for grace. You've got to declare your ongoing need for God's grace. Here's Pharisees who have this inflated view of their own goodness. And they were unaware of their own need for grace and for mercy. Look with me at Luke 18. Here's the prayer of a Pharisee. Verse 9, Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They treated others with contempt. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray. It's a good thing, right? One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So you got a holy guy and a sinner. The Pharisee was the holy guy and the tax collector was the bad guy. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed. Now there's, he's standing up. He's not on his knees before God. He's not penitent. He's all about himself. Oh Lord! I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. Or even like this tax collector. He's praying and pointing his finger. This is bad prayer, by the way. Bad prayer. Oh, and he keeps going. I fast twice a week. You owe me. I give tithes of all I get. That should count for something. But the tax collector, standing far off, he, couldn't, he wouldn't even come near. He was humble. Wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. He beat his breast. Here's what he said. Here, here's the prayer of the tax collector. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner, God. That's the prayer God hears. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone, this is going to sound very familiar to what we looked at last week, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the person who humbles himself will be exalted. I want to show you something interesting here with this passage. And uh, Matthew is, you know, precise and he, he also kind of gets to the point quickly. And, but there's something here that probably wouldn't be seen because it's so far away uh, from, from Matthew 23. But there is a contrast to this chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. 
We've already looked at it. We looked at it a long time ago in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, every woe in chapter 23 has a contrasting blessing in the Beatitudes in Matthew, chapter 20, in Matthew 5. Now go to Matthew 5. And it, it's amazing how these line up. We're just going to look at the first Beatitude today. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed. So no woe, no curse, no condemnation, blessing on this, on the poor in spirit. That's like that tax collector. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's the contrasting blessing to the woe in Matthew 23, 13. The poor in spirit. The bankrupt spiritually. The needy. The confessing are blessed. People who declare their ongoing need for grace are repenters and forgivers. Repenters and forgivers aren't hypocritical. If you're born again to a living hope by the Spirit of God through the resurrection of Jesus, you'll repent and forgive. If you're not, you won't. Revelation 3.20. Go with me there. Revelation 3. Verse 20. He's talking to the church at Laodicea. Jesus is talking to the church at Laodicea. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous and repent. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You might remember there's a picture a painting, I don't know if it was Hook's Portraits of Christ or who wrote it, or who, who drew it, but there's this picture and it's always pointed out, hey, do you notice the door doesn't have a, a knob on the outside, it's only on the inside and it's, here's the way it's usually spun, you got to open up your heart to Jesus. It's all about you opening your heart to Jesus and you got to do it. Jesus isn't going to barge his way into your life and it sounds plausible, but it's not accurate. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is talking to a church of believers and telling them to repent. That's what's happening. He's saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. He's telling them to repent. This is for a believer to repent. We use it as a salvation experience verse. It's not. It's about, it's about believers repenting. Declaring their ongoing need for grace. The absence of hypocrisy in someone's life, which is, is genuine faith and a sincere love from a pure heart, that's the absence of hypocrisy, is a mark of godly character. We who follow the authoritative king of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, we must get to that place, and I think over and over and over again, where we are broken over our wretched ex- exclusivity, our wretched partiality, our wretched hearts. 
That's what I think should happen. That's what I think does happen in the lives of true believers. That over and over again, we get back to the point where we are broken before God. You need to grasp the depths of your own hypocritical ways as well as the heights of God's mercy in Christ. Last week, I invited you to go on a 90-day exercise with me of taking back our lives from the sticky web of hypocrisy. The sticky web of hypocrisy. Spider web that, you know, traps unsuspecting insects. We're not unsuspecting insects. We're people, and we're claiming to, most of us are claiming to know Jesus and to follow Christ. And, and I, I invited you to enter in with me into a season of honest self-reflection. What was revealed to me this week wasn't pretty. It wasn't comfortable. And by the way, that's not a quick fix. It's, it's a process of the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God in a believer's life. This is, I'm inviting you into real life with me. Allowing the Spirit of God to search our hearts and sift our hearts and allow the mirror of the Word of God to penetrate our lives and show us our true selves. The windows get cleaned. They've gotten all mucked up and they need to be cleared and coupled with the Word of God in prayer that we would understand God's purpose for our lives so that we would be more healthy and fruitful in Christ. I just don't want to talk about hypocrisy as a problem out there because I know that hypocrisy is a problem in here. I don't want to just talk about it. I want to change the way you think about it. I want to trust God to change the way we think about it. That's what I, that's what I want to do. I, I want us to grasp the depths of our hypocritical ways and, and most importantly, the heights of God's mercy in Christ. When you admit your ongoing need for grace... God's grace in your home, in your workplace, in your school, in your community, wherever you find yourself, you make the gospel attractive to other people. And, and it's kind of counterintuitive. You think, wait, how could that be? Because I'm so messed up. Why would I want to show people that? That's real life. That's comforting because everyone knows that we're all messed up. Everyone knows that. For real, honest regular people struggling with the same things. Declare your ongoing need for grace and you will not shut the door for the gospel. But number two, determine to remove barriers to the gospel, not erect them. Because your heart's going to want to go and build up some barriers as soon as you decide you're going to declare your ongoing need for grace. Pharisees have this inflated view of their own goodness and they're unaware of their own need for mercy but the truly godly, as John Calvin put it, being conscious of their own weakness, kindly forgive the weak. See, one way our, our profession of Christ is shown to be real is our willingness to help people find forgiveness and salvation in the gospel. It's interesting. God is sovereign. So how do we keep people from the kingdom? Because we're responsible to portray truth accurately. 
And the Bible speaks about even the elect being led astray into deception and false teachers leading many people astray and some people swerving from the truth, some not being straightforward about the gospel. Even Peter did that at a time. See, a crooked gospel message is like a fake door. It's like a, a trap door. Like Paul preaching in 1 Thessalonians, he's talking to them and saying, I preached the gospel to you amidst much opposition. It wasn't easy, but I did it. And I want to keep doing it, and I want to present to you a clear picture of what it means to follow Christ. He says in in 1 Corinthians 16, there's been a, a wide door for effective service for me, and there are many adversaries. So you've got to determine to remove the barriers to the gospel and not erect them because there will be ample opportunity to build up a lot of barriers. I love how Paul keeps talking about this. Second Corinthians, you know, there's a door was opened for me in the Lord. Colossians, God will open for us a door to the word, for the word. We've got to preach the gospel clearly. We can't soft pedal it or add to it. We've got to let people know that God loves them. And he sent his only son and we have sin. He's holy and we're sinful and we're separated from him without, apart from faith in him. And he poured out his blood on the cross. He substituted himself in our place. He's offering eternal life through the resurrection of Christ. So the only plausible thing to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. We've got to make sure we preach the gospel about a holy God and sinful man and and perfect savior who took our place and bridged the gap because that perfect savior james tells us is standing at the door the judge is standing at the door he is near can fallen people count on us to help them find the way to jesus when you decide to tear down walls and do all you can to help everyone you know come to christ the door is open you can talk to them. You can discuss things with them. And hopefully they will, they will come to, to faith in Christ. Last thing, as the worship team comes up, delight in Jesus. Delight yourself in Jesus, and you're going to want to do what God wants you to do. The first beatitude here centers on our view of ourselves in relation to God. Poor in spirit. But when we're proud and arrogant, our heart plays tricks on us. And we start to think others' sins are worse than ours. I got a quote for you. It's in Old English, but I think you'll know what it's saying. I had to read it a few times to get it. It's something Matthew Henry said. If men's religion prevails not to conquer and cure the wickedness of their hearts, it shall not always serve for a cloak. The day is coming when hypocrites will be stripped of their fig leaves. Door closers presume to be in charge. The poor in spirit are at God's mercy. Door closers overinflate their importance. The poor in spirit magnify God's importance. Door closers are self aware with regard to their own righteousness and unaware of their sin. The poor in spirit, they know. They know how much they need Jesus. Lord God, we we know. We're not high and mighty. We want to be meek and lowly before you.
Lord, we, we don't want to confess other people's sins. We want to confess ours. We don't want to proudly insist that we're not at fault in any way. We want to humbly ask for your forgiveness. Lord God, we, we do close doors to the gospel. But we want to repent of that. Lord, we, we know our only hope is you. And we thank you in Christ's name.